0: it's the 20th anniversary of the movie the matrix why should you care well there's a bunch of reasons it turns out first of all that movie is very meaningful in a very special way to the trans community many of whom see it as an allegory or a potential allegory about their own journeys that's number one number two there's a whole school of philosophy that asks the question would we know if we were living in that kind of situation because, of course, the whole idea of The Matrix is people don't really understand what their real situation is. They're living a simulated reality. Would we know if we were trapped in one of those simulated reality? And lastly, I did not know this myself, but there's a keanu happening that is a reappraisal of the work of the actor Keanu Reeves. Is he perhaps far, far greater than we ever gave him credit for? All of those things are coming up after the news.
1: You weren't supposed to relieve me. I know, but I felt like taking a shift.
2: You like him, don't you? You like watching him. Don't be ridiculous. We're gonna kill him. You understand that?
1: Morpheus believes he is the one. Do you? It doesn't matter what I believe. You don't, do you? Did you hear that? Hear what? Are you sure this line is clean?
3: Yeah, of course I'm sure.
0: That means we're doing a show about the Matrix. You're in the Matrix. I'm in the Matrix right now. I've actually rarely felt while hosting this show as much like I am in the Matrix and that my own human agency is only minimally uh, effective or important. Um See, usually when I have that feeling, Josh Nalea has produced the show. In this case, uh, Jonathan McPants has done it. It is the 20th anniversary of the release of The Matrix. Uh, There's a lot of things going on, even at this moment, uh, ways in which The Matrix has been understood and interpreted that may not be anywhere on your own uh, laptop or radar screen, uh, including, as you'll hear in this segment, A way in which, uh, for the trans community, The Matrix has seemed like a fairly pertinent allegory, um, or at least there are ways in which the movie's story echoes with the story of the trans experience. Um, You'll also hear not for the first time on this show, uh, some speculation as to whether we might in fact be living in a computer simulation or some kind of simulated reality uh, and what that means and, and why people think about it a lot, which some people do. And then lastly, and this was a big surprise to me because it was happening in a corner of social media that I just wasn't tuned into. There we are living through something called <laughs> called the Keanu Sans, or specifically hashtag Keanu Sans, I think is the right way to say it. Uh, the notion that Keanu Reeves looms larger in our lives and should loo- loom even larger in our lives uh, than might have been previously expected. Or suspected. All right. I think I've blundered around enough through an introduction. Let me tell you, uh, in this segment, you're going to meet uh, David Sims. Not for the first time. He's been on the show before. Staff writer at The Atlantic, the co-host of the Audio Boom movie podcast, Blank Check with Griffin and David. Uh, also, in just a couple of minutes, uh, Emily Vanderwerf, uh, critic at large for Vox where she published how The Matrix universalized a trans experience and helped me accept my own. Uh, But David Sims, we're going to have you begin uh, with just kind of I don't know. I mean, 20 years ago was a pretty interesting year in the movies, Uh, everything from the Blair Witch Project to Sixth Sense to American Beauty to Three Kings to being John Malkovich, uh, Galaxy Quest, Magnolia, Office Space. why? Why is the Matrix more important than all those, or, or at least more worth kind of setting up a buoy in the middle of that sea, so we we make sure we know where the Matrix is?
4: Well, I don't, I don't know. Well, hello, thank you for having me. Sure. Um, I don't know if it's you know if it needs to be more important than you know the many movies that came with it in that sort of weird magical Hollywood year at the turn of the century, but it does feel like as our culture was pivoting towards the internet and our interconnectivity and the ways in which we perceive reality through computers, that The Matrix more and more feels like this early touchstone of, uh, pop culture that would, you know, just continue to be discussed for the next couple decades.
0: One thing that you have observed uh, in a piece in The Atlantic is that a movie like The Matrix m- probably wouldn't have been made today and might never happen again. Make that argument. It's
4: essentially, I mean, and this is the sort of large argument about 1999 as well, is you have Hollywood's indie movement that started in the early 90s with Sundance and Reservoir Dogs and Sex Lies and Videotape and all that. Cresting in '99, where studios are willing to take chances on unproven filmmakers and give them big budgets for pie-in-the-sky projects that have no branding, no existing merchandise, you know, no franchise that they can be glommed onto. It's the kind of risk-taking that Hollywood just doesn't really go in for anymore. If they're going to give you a summer release and a lot of money, it better be a remake or a sequel or part of an existing franchise or something like that—something that they can sort of do the math on and, and feel comfortable that they're going to get their return.
0: Or you know, maybe an easier rule of thumb is if you can't explain it easily to Will Smith, uh, it shouldn't <laughs> right. get made. Uh, you make the point in your piece that Will Smith appears to have turned down.
4: He admitted yeah. to turning it down, yes, because he did not understand the, the pitch of the movie at all.
0: So I, you know, I, and I think that's an interesting point that the, that for a big, for a movie to loom this large, become that big, and be that complicated, and it maybe was kind of a year like that. I mean, the the movie that I compare it to the most in that whole list is Fight Club, which is another movie which kind of fundamentally questions um, identity, um, fundamentally distrusts identity, and. Uh, the, the the trappings of the exterior world. I don't know. I'm trying to sort of make a kind of zeitgeist guess about, guess about 99. You could op throw being John Malkovich in there, too, if you wanted to. There was something going on there.
4: Yes. Uh, with Fight Club also you have, I mean, that's very much a movie about masculine crisis and sort of men wondering what their place is in the world anymore and uh, lashing out in all kinds of weird and violent ways, uh, which also feels relevant 20 years on. Yeah. Um. Uh, yeah, but that you know that's another one that uh, I mean, David Fincher can't get a movie made today. And you know, back then studios were like, "Yeah, we'll put up the money. You know, make make your weird novel adaptation that's like the hardest R possible."
0: Well, although, and I I don't want to make this too much about the industry, but it could also could be argued that because because of all the platforms that exist now, you can make anything. You might not be able to make it into a summer blockbuster, but you can make anything and get eyes put on it. Right. Television
4: is is really more the place where people take a lot of risks, uh, it seems these days.
0: Um, so one thing I didn't do to get ready for the show that I should have done, uh, which is what w- was watch The Matrix again. Um, <laughs> I-, I assume you think it holds up reasonably well.
4: It holds up great. It, I would say it holds up better than ever. It has a very defined aesthetic. It's um, an incredibly sort of complex piece of world building that gets you uh, gets you gets a good gets you gets you a good explanation of what's going on for every level deeper it goes, like very quickly. It just, yeah, it feels a little like a miracle when you watch it these days.
0: Right. Well, um, you know, we just did a show recently about the actual product Soylent, which obviously uh, shares a name with an old science fiction movie about people being fed with a viscous thing made out of people, which obviously also has some kinship with the Matrix. So, I mean, it does make some sense to wonder how close over the last 20 years we've come to the Matrix as well, since we're now drinking Soylent. Uh, And we will talk about that as things go on today. Maybe one last thing to say before we uh, weave Emily into this conversation is that, uh, you know— Uh, and I don't know who made this point, whether it's uh, our producer Jonathan McPants or somebody else, but The Matrix also sits right on the cusp of a moment... Before superhero movies began to define popular culture yeah. and summer blockbuster movies and everything like, like that, I mean, and, and in a way, The Matrix seems like a startlingly original and kind of sui generous piece of uh, of filmmaking compared to. Not that I don't love superhero movies, I do, but they're very they don't have that same level of startling originality.
4: No, I mean, two thousand the next year. Basically, a year after The Matrix was released, you get X Men, which is the start, I would say, of Hollywood beginning to take superhero movies seriously, rather Mm -hmm. than as like a little sort of nerdy niche thing. But you know, it's like, hey, we can, you know, we can build a summer around one of these things. And what's funny about X Men is that it's it really drafts off The Matrix because they were still a little concerned about, you know, putting their heroes in spandex and bright colors and that. So they have them all in leather, which is like. Leather was the cool thing at that moment because of the Matrix, you know, wearing these sort of like very dark and gritty costumes. And uh, so it's funny to see that little handshake, but it is, you're, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing about The Matrix that sticks out the most.
0: Right. So, uh, Emily Vanderwerf, let's get you into this conversation. And I, I know that you've written about this too, about this moment, this 1999 uh, moment that, uh, although it included some pretty garbagey things like Star Wars Phantom Menace, uh, also did include American Beauty Fight Club, being John Malkovich. So, uh, what do you think is going on there, Emily? What, uh, and how does The Matrix? fit into that moment, if at all.
2: You know, you really think about the end of the 20th century as like the end of this century, where American capitalism seemed to have been victorious over everything else. And like, you read, that's the era of Francis Fukuyama writing about the end of history and all of this stuff. So like, people were looking toward the 21st century and saying, well, it's just going to be like, great. So you see a lot of these movies that are about like, empty consumerism and these men who find themselves unable to define themselves in the face of that. uh, I think the matrix really fits within that movement, you know, even even as I've written about it as like a trans allegory. It is like on the surface, a story about like a boring guy who discovers that like his boring life full of products is not fulfilling in the way that like fighting back against robots would be. And, you know, American beauty and fight club are, are other spins on that basic idea, except there aren't robots.
0: Yes, Emily, and it could be argued, as I think David did uh, argue, that that office space fits a little bit into this, too. I mean, talk about uh, people in a much more comic sense confronting this yeah. innervating version of capitalism.
2: Yeah, and I, I would argue the same about, you know, being John Malkovich. There's a whole, like, sort of mini-movement of movies at this, at this period that are really about this topic of, like, We thought everything was going to be great, and instead we all feel kind of sad, and like, that's really the end of 90s, not just movies but TV. That's also the era of The Sopranos, which is a show sort of explicitly about those questions.
0: So um, before we move into the, the trans allegory part of this, uh, we should talk about uh, another trope from the movie that that has survived and kind of mutated. And that is the red pills and the blue pills and, and the, the, the term red pilling. And I have to say, Emily, this is like the term red pilling as it's used in 2019 might be a term that is not well known to a, a big chunk of public radio listeners who don't spend a lot of time arguing with the trolls on Twitter. So so maybe set this whole thing up for us.
2: I'm going to try to just briefly define it. It's the idea that within the movie, if you take the red pill, your eyes are awakened to the nature of the matrix. And if you take the blue pill, you go back into sort of slumber and go back into the the dream world the machines have constructed for you. So within certain spheres online, particularly alt-right spheres or alt-right adjacent spheres, especially the men's rights activists people, uh, there's sort of this idea that if you take the red pill – to be red pilled is to wake up to the way that the world has been corrupted by the forces of social justice causes, and especially by the forces of feminism. It really, I sort of first really became aware of it in the days of of Gamergate, yep. in like 2014, 2015. But it's been around ever since. There's this idea that like the social justice causes are sort of trying to rob men, and especially white men, of their power, and like. That's really like sort of the idea behind being red pilled. Um, Obviously, I would not agree with that, but like that—that's kind of a brief definition of what they mean.
0: Right. So, and and so uh, everybody listening, kind of hold on to that notion of red pilling (laughs) being used as kind of a substitute for uh, an eye-opening moment in which you connect to your inner male bully uh, and reject all kinds of social justice issues, because there is a deep, deep irony in that, which Emily is going to acquaint you with. Uh, But before we get Get to that, um, you know, David, I just want to swing back to you for a second because as Emily's describing that, I'm realizing that's that's another part of this 1999 moment, I think, which is that y- because we are entering a digital world and the world is going to become more digital, there's this fundamental question that's expressed in those pills: Are you going to uh, are you going to be manipulated by machinery, or are you going to be awake through the machine machinery enough so that you become a controlling agent? Right? That right. There's probably a lot of anxiety that we were feeling at that moment, expressed in in that particular dichotomy.
4: Yeah, I mean and we mentioned fight club there's american beauty there's a lot of movies at the end of the 90s pre-9/11 where as emily's saying like there's just this question of like is that all there is what do we do with ourselves now and the matrix more than anything is the ultimate like wake up sheeple movie where uh the whole message is like you know wh- whatever narrative you think you know your life is supposed to take like that's all just been pre-written and it's time for you to cast it aside Mm-hmm. Uh Which is funny because then the sequels challenge that that whole concept so aggressively, but the sequels is just another conversation
0: all right, I just realized something Andrew Yang is neo. Somebody tweet, <laughs> somebody tweet that out right now. Andrew Yang is Neo. I want to be the first person who says that. Even if it's not the remotest bit true, I want to be the person. Because he understands that like machines are going to take our places. All right. So, um, Emily, w- we have to talk more about this. And I have to say that this is something that probably should have dawned on me, but didn't dawn on me. And you, you've you made this uh, beautifully constructed uh, argument about this. I guess maybe we should begin with the term egg, which has a meaning in the trans community that I, frankly, was right. not aware of of. So let, let's go there first.
2: Uh, I'm, I am a trans person, and I was unaware of it until I really started seriously sort of confronting my gender. So I'm not surprised that that people who aren't doing that aren't aware of it. The idea of an egg is somebody who is pre-coming out, who is a trans person before coming out, that they're sort of inside this warm cocoon of an eggshell and like they have yet to fully come into themselves but like it's kind of comfortable in there so you don't need to do too much but like also you're aware that there's so much more if you ever just broke out of this eggshell so kind of this idea of like being inside the egg and being cocooned off from the world like is really similar to the early experience of being trans and so far as i can tell The term egg originated after the Matrix, but if you look at the first third of the Matrix where Neo is in the Matrix and then you see him in this giant egg-shaped thing, like there's a lot of similarity there to how trans people talk about the experience of being an egg.
0: Right. And so, you know, to anybody who's sitting there right now saying, well, I think that's kind of a stretch to think that the Matrix would have anything to, to do with the trans experience. Uh, perhaps you need to be reminded or maybe be informed about about the, the people who made the Matrix, uh, a, a pair of brothers who are now a pair of sisters. Uh, tell us uh, about them, Emily.
2: Yes. Uh, the Wachowskis uh, for for a while, the Wachowski brothers, but now I mean, they they are the Wachowski sisters wachowski siblings for a while whatever you want to call them i call them the wachowskis Um, (laughs) they are lana and lily they're both trans women uh lana was sort of nebulously out is my understanding around the time of the matrix sequels lily came out later uh and and i you know they're both very private people so we we uh, i don't want to you know speak too much about their their personal lives but like knowing that they're trans women you can rewatch The Matrix movies sort of through that filter in a way that is really uh, powerful and, and compelling. And, like, I've found it, like, I in general, I think when trans readings are applied to movies, they tend to be accidental trans readings. Like, I really love the horror movie Hereditary, and I sort of love it as trans cinema, but, like, it is not that. The, the director is a cisgender male, which means he's not. He's comfortable with the gender he was assigned at birth. That's not true of the Matrix. Like those are not accidentally trans movies. They are canonically made by trans directors, and and that makes the Matrix movies such an interesting cornerstone of like trans cinema.
0: Um. And Emily, it, it's not as though the rich that neither Wachowski has said anything uh, about mm-hmm. this. They haven't said nothing uh, about yeah, this connection. Yeah. So what have they said?
2: Publicly, you know, they have they have given speeches and such, and like they sort of are really tickled, I think, by the idea that people are now reading their work through the lens of them being trans women, because obviously from their point of view, they, they certainly knew or had a sense of that long before we did. So I think that they are they are sort of fascinated by the idea that we are catching up with that. Um uh, Lily Wachowski said at a, a speech before GLAD in I think 2016 that like she was really entertained by this notion, but also that the entire idea of all of their filmography comes back to the idea that like love conquers all, and that's that's what happens when you start talking about the Wachowskis. Is they have these huge transgressive ideas about like the self and humanity, and then like when you start boiling them down, it really does come down to like corny old movie stuff, like love conquers all. And that's why I think they've been successful because they balance that like really new thoughts that haven't really been seen on film before with like the oldest messages of the movies.
0: Okay, I want to have both of you uh, uh, talk, talk about that issue of all the movies that the Wachowskis have ever made, because also heading into this, I, I'm not sure I could have summoned t- to mind the other movies that the Wachowskis made. I mean, they certainly have made one iconic franchise and then a lot of other movies, but that doesn't mean that their other movies are insignificant. So, um, so David, maybe start us off here. Uh, when you evaluate the entire Wachowski canon, uh, what do you see in terms of the rest of their output?
4: Um, They tend to make movies about sort of systems that exploit humanity and the ways in which humanity sort of resists that. So, I mean, their big follow-up to the Matrix sequels was making Speed Racer, which was this adaptation, obviously, of a famous Japanese uh, cartoon that uh, was a huge financial failure and is an extremely visually overstimulating film. But it is also about the inner workings of the futuristic car racing industry and, like, the ways in which... Uh, corporations like take over every kind of act of human expression, and then Cloud Atlas, uh, their big adaptation of the uh, the David Mitchell book that they co directed with Tom Tickver, which is you know telling a story across like six ages in humanity, but also with a lot of those same themes. And then their most recent, and I mean, who knows if they'll ever make another movie? Hopefully they will. But their most recent attempt at a big blockbuster franchise was Jupiter Ascending, which was a bit of a flop at the time, but I mean, I think does have a sort of like a slightly warm small cult following. That's another. It's another Love Conquers all across, you know, a gigantic sort of space opera system of evil capitalists and immortal aliens and things like that, uh, starring uh, Channing Tatum and Mila Kunis. I, I love all their movies, but they have never... Been able to sort of crack the zeitgeist again in the same way that they did with the Matrix.
0: We could uh, Emily also throw in Sense Eight, uh, their uh, of streaming series. Yeah, Emily, just give us give us your take on on the rest of the Wachowskis.
2: You know, I rewatched The Matrix before I wrote my piece, obviously, but then I was like, I just have to rewatch the sequels. And I am so glad the sequels are sort of being reclaimed. Matrix Reloaded especially is one of my favorite films of theirs. It's not quite as good as the first one. It's still very good. And I think it plays very differently now in an era when we're sort of actively questioning the chosen one protagonist myth. Uh, the revolutions is a little shakier, but there's good stuff in there. I, I love Cloud Atlas, though. I, that's that's my favorite movie of theirs. I, it's one of my favorite movies of this decade. It has a lot of big, obvious problems. Like they did a lot of uh, race-blind casting, which means they're doing a lot of makeup that essentially is yellowface. So, like, if you can't look past that, I don't blame you. It's 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 hugely problematic. But I find it to be in the service of this idea of like transcending time and space and race and gender and all of these things to just sort of acknowledge that we're all like connected to this same human oversoul, which is so wild and like so Terrence Malachy yet within the construct of kind of this vaguely action movie. Uh, And also it's like flipping the channels between six different movies and like who doesn't love that?
0: Right, Um, and I love uh, Malachy as in uh, adjective, um, <laughs> as distinct from sort of Maliki as a first name. Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, and first of all, I, I, we've barely scratched the surface of what uh, Emily has to say about all this, so uh, we will link to her article on, on our show page at WNPR slash Colin and to David's article, of course, too. Uh, but make sure you track down how the Matrix universalized a trans experience and helped me accept my own. Uh, we'll come back with more. We're going to go uh, really into into simulated reality uh, in an even bigger way. Won't that be fun after this?
1: Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. offering is the truth nothing more this is the construct it's our loading program we can load anything from clothing to equipment weapons training simulations anything we need right now we're inside a computer program Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone? Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self.
0: This...
1: This isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain.
0: So, I should say that back in 2010, uh, we were uh, at the end of a long, long conversation with Lara Christ, who does a lot of research into neuroscience and its intersection with philosophy, and she'd been suggesting all kinds of ideas and well, for show episodes, which we either were sure we couldn't do or weren't sure we could do. And then... Just kind of as an afterthought, she said, there's also, also just that whole, you know, is this really reality question? How do we know this is reality? And we all kind of bolted forward and said, what do you mean? And she told us at that point about the philosopher Nick Bostrom and the thought experiment that he had done about what, what, what would it mean? If we were living in a in a simulation, that this weren't really reality, if we were on the equivalent, say, of the holodeck in Star Trek, and we actually did that whole show, we didn't, we couldn't get Nick Bostrom, but he had a lot a lot of other smart people on to talk about this. So nine years later, we're going to talk about it again. David Sims still with us, staff writer at The Atlantic, the co-host of the Audio Boom Movie Podcast, Blank Check with Griffin and David. Now joining us via Skype is Rizwan Virk, uh, executive director at Play Labs at MIT. Of video game program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His new book is The Simulation Hypothesis. An MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. Um, So uh, I'm going to let you get us started here, Viz, after Morpheus has already gotten us started. And um, so my recollection of 1999 was that, you know, there weren't a lot of people walking out and going, wow, maybe we are living in a simulation. But I feel as though that concept, that idea is less far-fetched to people 20 years later, uh, just based on the fact that you wrote that book. I assume you feel that way too.
3: Uh, Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, I think 20 years ago, people viewed The Matrix purely as science fiction. And, you know, a couple of things have happened since then that I think makes people take the idea that we may be living inside a simulation much more seriously. And the first is the fidelity of video games, you know, has improved quite a bit. Uh, I mean, we've had World of Warcraft and now we have Fortnite and we have these very complex 3D virtual worlds. Uh, and the, the pixel resolution has gotten quite good. So we've gotten to the point where we can then project that using virtual reality glasses uh, and we're not quite at the point where we can create something like the matrix and I talk about the road to the simulation point uh, in, in my book, which are the 10 stages of technology we would need to, to get there. But know the road is is much more visible now the second is that ai has made great strides as well so you know if you remember in the matrix agent smith right you had your uh, player characters who were people like neo who were in the simulation and also existed outside the simulation but then you had what we call npcs in the video game world who are the non-player characters uh and so i think you know the video game industry has gotten to be bigger than hollywood in terms of you know the total uh, size. Uh, in a given year. And so because of that, you know, terms like the avatar are much more accepted now than they were back then. And this idea of role-playing, you know, has become very per- pervasive all around.
0: Right. And so uh, no less an eminence than Elon Musk uh, said the following just three years ago at the Code Conference.
5: The strongest argument for us being in a simulation, probably being in a simulation, I think is the following. 40, 40 years ago, we had Pong like two rectangles and a dot. That was what games were. Now, 40 years later, we have photorealistic 3D simulations with millions of people playing simultaneously, and it's getting better every year. Mm -hmm. And soon we'll have virtual reality, we'll have augmented reality. If you assume any rate of improvement at all, then the games will become indistinguishable from reality. Even if that rate of advancement drops by a thousand from what it is right now then you just say, okay, well, we'll, let's imagine it's a 10,000 years in the future, uh, which is nothing in the evolutionary scale. So so given that we're clearly on a trajectory to have games that are indistinguishable from reality, and those games could be played on any set-top box or on a PC or whatever, and there would probably be billions of such computers or set-top boxes, it would seem to follow that the odds that we're in base reality is one in billions.
0: So, viz, you know, it seems to me that um, uh, one of the tipping points here, one of the differentiation uh, points, would be that most of the things that we have right now, or maybe all of the things that we have right now, uh, and and certainly in terms of your. Uh, your uh, stages of technology leading up to the simulation point, um, uh, at least up to six, I would assume, there's the level of self-consciousness, right? I mean, in other words, if we're playing a virtual reality game right now, you know, you describe playing a ping pong game and kind of forgetting that it's virtual reality and assuming that there's a table there when there isn't, dropping things and whatever. But ultimately, we know we have a self-consciousness. We have a consciousness that we're in a virtual reality game. Um, it it would seem to me that the simulation point uh, as laid out in the the matrix means we don't know anymore. Uh,
3: That's right, yeah. So uh, stage 10 uh, is really the point at which we download our consciousness into the game and cannot distinguish between whether we're in a game or not. Obviously today, you know, I told the story of how I was playing ping pong in virtual reality, and I completely forgot, you know, that I was – in a virtual game so much so that I put the paddle down on the table. And of course the paddle fell to the floor because there was no table. There was no paddle. In this case, it was a controller. And it kind of reminded me of you know the line from the matrix where, you know, there is no spoon. Uh, and I thought, well, our reactions, uh, are in our brains, kind of like Morpheus was saying in the quote, right? What is reality? It's a set of electrochemical signals that we happen to be getting in our brains, and so our video games have gotten pretty good at pixel resolution, and that's what Elon Musk was talking about. In fact, just last week he was at the E3 gaming conference, and you know somebody asked him about this, and he said his question was, "Whose avatar are you?" <laughs> right? But you know, the resolution has gotten pretty good. If you look at special effects in movies like Blade Runner 2049, I mean, the, the pixels of the cars that are flying versus the background, they blend nicely. What was missing is the ability to render in real time, and then this area that we call brain-computer interfaces, right? So if you recall the Matrix, when Neo woke up, he had this wire that was attached, you know, into his uh, neocortex, which, you know, may be where they got the name from. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The signals were beamed directly in there. And so this technology of BCI, there are a number of companies that are working on being able to read your thoughts as well as to gauge your reactions. Uh, We would also need to be able to have false memories uh, within this. And that kind of brings up another science fiction um author which is philip k dick who writes a lot about you know what is reality and what isn't and the the wachowskis were inspired partly uh by him but in blade runner for example you know they they bring up androids that have false memories Uh, and we're now getting to the point where we can implant false memories uh, within rat's brains you know how long will it take before we get to the point that we could do that you know within human brains and so the point is that if we can get there and, and my estimate is maybe by 2100, which would be some 80 years from now, or certainly by 2200, we as a civilization can get there. Who's to say that a civilization that isn't a thousand years ahead of us has already gotten there? And that was the crux of of Nick Bostrom's simulation argument, was that if any civilization ever got there, then they will create many simulations with trillions of simulated beings. Uh, And therefore, if you are a being, you are more likely to be a simulated being because there are many more of them all it takes is a new server and you can have a billion more beings you know in, inside these these virtual worlds um, so of course now in, in his argument everyone is an NPC which is a little bit different than you know within the matrix and within the video game version I, I tend to be more uh, an advocate of, of the matrix like version where we exist in some form outside of the game but we've forgotten that we're outside the game because uh, of the way that it's all set up and our consciousness is downloaded uh, into into who we are you know in this life
0: so uh, David Sims you know in crafting the sequel the Wachowskis, I don't know whether it was the pressure of coming up with a second act or just maybe something that they took delight in and this might be a tiny bit spoilery but if you like you haven't watched the the matrix sequel yet you're probably not going to um, so one of the things that that they begin to explore is is the presumed kind of leg up over uh the simulation that neo seems to have achieved throughout the first movie is that real or that could that be part of the simulation i mean they start adding kind of more more skin to the onion uh david
4: yeah uh i think they the wachowskis were were just wanted to sort of challenge the hero arc, the sort of, you know, because Neo has this sort of Christ-like uh, arc in the first movie. He's the savior, and he dies on screen, and he's revived, and he's the chosen one who's going to, you know, save everybody. And then the second film, which is mostly, almost entirely set within the Matrix, and almost all of the characters are computer programs that Neo interacts with, uh, which is bizarre in its own way, uh, ends with the big revelation that, yes, uh, Neo is all powerful within the matrix, but that's just a part of the whole matrix arc, and they've been doing this over and over again where there's always a chosen one. he always saves the world, and it's really just a machine set up to reset everything and you know start over again without disturbing their larger you know machinations
0: so riz that you know that brings up one of what I think one of was one of bostrom's questions, which was. You know, if we're in a simulation, does it matter how we act? In other words, should we feel as though we could act differently because it's a simulation? It's not real. I mean, and how do, how do you deal with that? How, how do you react to that?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a common question when talking about the simulation hypothesis. But, you know, I would view it in terms of a video game uh, where, you know, if a character dies in a video game, that character— actually you know might die and so if the game is so realistic it, he's actually going through the motions i would say what type of video game is it and what are the goals of the video game and you know you might be in a first person shooter uh, i mean why do we play video games we play video games to have experiences that we can't have necessarily outside in the physical reality you know i can't be an elf and go kill an orc or whatever else i might do and so you know now we're touching on some metaphysical questions Uh, you know, and about a third of the book talks about some of the Eastern traditions and the Western religions and how, you know, they may have been telling us all along that what we see around us is a kind of illusion and that we have quests and achievements, which are very common in games these days, that we're here to achieve. In the East, they call that karma, right? It's a set of tasks that you're supposed to do. And as you play the game, you create more tasks for yourself. And in Buddhism, for example, you know, you have, and, and there's a lot of you know eastern philosophy overlap with the matrix uh, but you have this idea that the wheel keeps going around even in the western religions and you know, within Islam, Christianity, Judaism, there's this idea that you'll be judged on your deeds. Well, it turns out, you know, we actually record our plays in video games now and we stream them and we evaluate them afterwards. So, you know, I would say the difference is, you know, if there, we are in a game, I would like to know what the goals of the game are, what my particular quests and achievements are, and how we level up. And so, you know, there are sets of rules and things that perhaps. Uh, are better for us to do than other things, so it it it, it could make a difference. Uh, some people would rather not know. Getting back to the blue pill and the red pill, right? right. <laughs> they would like to just continue existing in the game as 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 they might otherwise.
0: All right, so we're going to have to pause there. We've been talking to Rizwan Virk, Executive Director of Play Labs at MIT. His new book is The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. Uh, you're going to have to read the book to get more of it. There just isn't time to lay out uh, a lot of his really uh, fascinating examples. We're going to take a break. We had to save time for the kiana Uh Talk about a religious revival. Talk about a chosen one. Maybe it's not Neo, maybe it's Keanu. Did you know that the first Matrix
1: was designed to be a perfect human world where none suffered, where everyone would be happy? It was a disaster. No one would accept the program. Entire crops were lost. Some believed that we lacked the programming language to describe your perfect world, but I believe that as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. So the perfect world a dream that your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from. Which is why the Matrix was redesigned to this, the peak of your civilization.
3: agents are coming. I gotta get away. There, the payphone. Hello? Hello? Well, which payphone is it? Not this one either? I hope it isn't some idiot with a cell phone ringtone that sounds like a payphone. Like my ringtone. Never mind. Get back, you creeps. I know origami. I'll fold you up like a paper swan. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McMatrix, Pants, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our excellent new intern is Carolyn McCusker. Until we pull her head, Jack. The part of Bill Curry was played by Joe Pantoliano. Tomorrow, come join us in Essex at the Connecticut River Museum at 4 p.m. when we record a show about shipwrecks. And now, back to (laughs) calling. (laughs)
0: The inside joke there, by the way, is that Joe Pantoliano, who uh, is Cypher uh, in uh, The Matrix, did fundraisers for the Bill Curry campaign in 2002. All right. So now, you know, the inside joke. I don't think that makes your life any better. Now You're still living in a simulation. Uh, All right. So uh, the final thing, as promised, and I did not know about this when this came up at our staff meeting yesterday, our big boss, Katie Tularski, she knew all about this. Uh, but we are living in a hashtag a Kianaissance. I I think we lived through a Makanaissance at one point uh, when uh, Matthew McConaughey went from being sort of semi-ridiculous to entirely legit. But this is bigger. It feels bigger somehow. David Sims is still uh, with us. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, co-host of the Boom, a movie podcast, Blank Check with Griffin and David, uh, and one of the chroniclers, one of the archivists uh, of the Keanu Sans, uh, River Donahue, uh, is also with us, associate editor at Vice, where he published the piece Give Keanu Reeves Some Space, comma, everybody. Um, so before we get to River, uh, David, are, are you buying this? Are you buying the uh, the, the the whole keanu Sans narrative?
4: Yeah, of course. I think there was—well, for one, he's proven to be an actor who is incredibly good at reinventing himself, considering that he is always a little bit Keanu on screen, which is part of being a movie star is that you're always going to be a little bit, you know, insert movie star name here, yeah. no matter what you're playing. But, you know, he's, you know, he started out as sort of like a stoner comedy guy and like Bill and Ted, things like that, parenthood. And then he reinvents himself as this sort of square jawed American action hero. Things like Point Break, Speed, you know, has another lull. He comes back with The Matrix. He has another lull. And now he's back again with John Wick, uh, which a few years ago when John Wick comes out. Keanu really hadn't opened a movie in, in several years, but I think there is a incredibly abiding public affection for him, especially because he's sort of become this multi-generational figure. Lots of people sort of grew up with Keanu, and uh, he's just gotten better and better at how to sort of use his image and have fun with it and, uh, you know, inhabit funny little characters.
0: All right, River Donahue, you're really going to be uh, the Virgil who guides us through this underworld. Um, So, um, one way that I saw him described was as the Internet's boyfriend. Uh, I don't know if that's a a phrase you can interpret for me.
6: (laughs) Well, that's definitely going around. Uh, Thanks for having me, Colin. Sure. Um, You know, I mean, I saw this morning there's a a petition going around trying to get Keanu named Times Person of the Year of 2019. I think there's, like twenty thousand signatures on it, right? Um, so I, the, the man is having a moment. I mean, between John Rick three and Toy Story four, and you know his cameo and Always Be My Maybe, and you know he's, he's even appearing in that video game Cyberpunk twenty twenty seven or twenty seventy seven. Uh, you know he's definitely having a wild summer. Is it a renaissance? Like maybe, but you know as David is saying, it's like to have a renaissance, you got to go away for a while. And Keanu never really went away. He's always been around. I think just people are starting to take a new fresh interest in him and You know, appreciate him in a different way.
0: I think you could also say there are ways in which, over time, and may you know, may Keanu files strike me dead for saying this. He's (laughs) been a punchline at certain times. There's been a way in which, in the same way that McConaughey went out of favor for a long time and was this kind of goony, ridiculous guy. There's a way in which Reeves, among certain people, Keanu has has had that uh, a little bit. We should say though, and not to make everything too much about the Matrix River, but there's Mm -hmm. a way in which. This is the Internet making its mind up in, in a way that's not top down. Yes, the people who run yeah. Netflix can use him in a promo. Yes, they can cast him uh, in, in Toy Story uh, as uh, Duke Kaboom and stuff like that. But this is kind of the users and the social media people saying, you know what? We're going to ev- we're going to elevate this guy to Godhead and nobody's going to stop us.
6: Yeah, I think it all comes from from memes, honestly. I mean, it starts with the Sad Keanu meme a couple of years ago um, Though that one, I don't know, that felt more like it had a hard edge, like the joke was on Keanu being bummed out than it was in appreciation of him. I think this summer, you know, all the Keanu memes have been very positive, right? There was that clip going around, you know, praising Keanu for, like, his transcendent speech about death on
0: uh, Colbert. Yes, Colbert, yeah. Um, And, and, um, yeah, now there's this slow walk thing that's from the trailer uh, of this uh, Netflix Mm -hmm. movie, and people are setting it to different kinds of music. Once again, this is sort of user-maker stuff, ways in which they're they're fooling around with that kind of stuff. We should—David Sims, I think we should—we would be remiss if we did not point out that this is not only the 20th anniversary of Matrix, but it's the 25th anniversary of this. Pop quiz.
1: You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you
2: do?
0: And that, of course, is the movie Speed, which raises the question for me, why couldn't Keanu Reeves have shot Jeff Daniels in the leg in Newsroom? Uh, That would have made my life so much better. Uh, But that's not how it worked out. So, David Sims, maybe you could say something a little bit about, I mean, before there was Keanu in The Matrix, there was Keanu in Speed, and that was kind of a big deal.
4: It was. I mean, I love Speed. It's funny to think of The Matrix as the ultimate unpitchable project that, you know, stars rejected because they didn't get what the movie was going to be about. or Speed is like the ultimate elevator pitch movie where it's like you can describe the idea in five seconds. Oh, there's a bus, and if the, you know, the bus slows down, a bomb's going to go off. And that's it. That's all you needed. And uh, Keanu, much like in Pork Point Break, he's got this like insane sincerity to him. He's. So successful at fully investing in whatever silliness is being sort of thrown at him, and so he's both calm and kind of a lunatic at the same time, which I think is sort of a crucial to the '90s action hero. And Tom Cruise has the same kind of quality, uh, where you you do trust him, but you also know that he's going to he's going to have the guts to do something absolutely ludicrous every five minutes, which is which is what Speed is. It's just like something ludicrous happens every five minutes.
0: Right. I actually saw that movie with uh, the group of people, including my friend Lou Wise, a lawyer who walked out and said... You know what I loved about that movie? I was never in any doubt about what was happening. I was never confused, <laughs> right. uh, for not even for one second. So, R- River Donahue, we have to sort of get yeah. to your point a little bit, which is that right now, yeah, I mean, the internet is the Matrix, and it's just churning out Keanu Reeves memes of every possible kind mm-hmm. and hashtags and craziness, and you, you're sort of making an argument for kind of right-sizing Keanu? Yeah,
6: I mean, I, I think Keanu is, I mean, as an actor, he's you know, he's very internal. He's like a master of stillness. He's very, uh, I don't know, he, he's a different kind. You don't see that much. He's a different kind of celebrity. And I think he's you know, a private guy, right? He's, he's quiet. He's introspective. Uh, he's introverted. Uh, he's not really, he's never really been vying for our attention. And now the internet is sort of plucking him out and putting him in the forefront. And, you know, I don't know if that's quite the best thing for Keanu. I think that, you know, the more attention we dump on him, the more we're at risk of like, ruining what's great about him in the first place.
0: But River, is, is, isn't, isn't, yeah. his, isn't his own resistance to this or his own obtuseness about it? I mean, there, there are some instances where he appeared not to know about the huge revisionist fuss being made about him right now. Isn't that part of the allure that anybody who seeks something like that immediately gets classified as some Jay Moore character that you don't want to be?
6: Yeah, oh, totally. I think that's totally it. I think the word he said was wacky. When he found out that he was the internet's boyfriend. Um, Yeah, I think he's, you know, he strikes this balance between public and private that we're all trying to strike in 2019.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is well put. Uh, all right. Well, we, I don't know if I dare uh, open up another uh, can of worms here. Maybe I shouldn't. But uh, but David Sims, where do you see all this going? I mean, are we, are, are we going to reach an angle of repose with Keanu Reeves or just continue to salivate over him?
4: I do worry uh, about what you're talking about, that there'll come a point at which everyone's a little sick of the Keanu thing. John Wick 4 has already been put on the schedule. <laughs> the train continues apace. But... At this point, he just seems like someone it would be sort of ridiculous to bet against. I mean, he's been a pop culture figure for three decades, you know, and... Uh, that's that's just sort of, you know, the longer you're at it, the, the more w- a well of love you can, you know, you have from the viewing audience. And I, I, right. I think he's just going to draw from that until he doesn't want to
0: anymore. Yeah. And you have different audiences, too. For me and my son, it's all about Point Break. Forget about right. everything else. So everybody has kind of a different one. All right. Thanks to everybody who helped out with this show today. Uh, thanks to River uh, and to David and Riz uh, and Emily and everybody else who helped out. And don't forget, if you don't remember anything else from this show, remember... Andrew Yang is Neo. Andrew Yang is Neo, all right? (laughs) I want that to be a meme by this afternoon, later this afternoon.
1: How long? Not long! Because what you reap
3: is what you sow!